Welcome, everyone, to our Narrative Medicine Rounds. Uh, for those of you that are joining us for the first time, Narrative Medicine Rounds happen once a month throughout the academic calendar year here at the medical campus on the first Wednesday of the month. Um, we're lucky enough to invite various authors, creative thinkers, and speakers to come and join us and talk about their work and its relationship to narrative and narrative medicine. This evening is no exception to that great tradition that we've been able to establish here. We have another fabulous speaker with us, Mr. Rashad Robinson, who we are looking forward to hearing from. Uh, my name is Mario De La Cruz, just because I forgot to tell you that, so I should. Uh, I'm a faculty member here at the uh, Program in Narrative Medicine and also do additional work um, with the Sophie Davis Biomedical Education Program at CUNY. Um, Prashad, again, is somebody that we are very fortunate to have with this. It's actually a connection which uh, allows me to speak very quickly about Deepu Gowda, who's just recently uh, left us to head over to California. Um, he was kind enough to ask me if I'd be able to handle the introduction duties today. He and Rashad um, happen to have a pre-existing connection from the Langeloth Foundation and similar work that they've engaged in there. Um, again, Rashad is speaking to us here about Color of Change. I'm going to just read briefly from the announcement um, that was sent around. Color of Change uses an innovative combination of technology, research, media savvy, and local community engagement to build powerful movements and change the industries that affect black people's lives. In Silicon Valley, Hollywood, Wall Street, Washington, prosecutors' offices, Capitol Hills, and city halls around the country. Robinson has led the organization in developing cutting-edge strategies to accelerate reform in the criminal justice system and win justice for its victims, increase electoral participation, cut off corporate support for right-wing organizations, and change the representation of black people and social issues in news and entertainment media. Just to mention a few quick credits, previously Robinson has served as Senior Director of Media Programs at GLAAD, leading all the organization's advocacy, strategic research, messaging, and large-scale media campaigns. And he has also been recognized by the Ebony Power 100, the Route 100, and Cranes New York Business 40 Under 40. So with that said, I'm going to introduce Rashad Robinson. Thank you. Thank you. How are you doing, everyone? Can you all hear me? Yes. Great. So I'm going to, like, I'm going to operate without the mic, but if for some reason, I start to, my voice starts to go in a way where you can't hear me, just let me know, but I, it'll be easier for me to move around. At 5'3", the, the podium uh, will cover far, far too much. Um, how are we doing? So I am um, honored to be here and be invited to uh, be in this space to talk about the work of Color of Change and really situate it inside of um, what does it mean to build the type of power that changes the story, changes the rules, changes the opportunity, changes the culture for black people. Um, we at Color Change operate from a deep, distinct belief that when black people win, the history of this country has shown time and time again that everyone wins. Mm -hmm. The victories that black people have had um, in this country since we got here 400 years ago um, have been victories that other communities have been able to leverage and build. And even if that wasn't the case, these type of victories show what is possible um, when communities come together um, and build the type of um, transformative change um, that makes their lives better. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about this work, but also really look forward to the questions and the discussion on the engagement that we'll have. Um, so Color of Change was actually founded uh, in the aftermath of a flood, Hurricane Katrina, mm -hmm. which was caused by bad decision makers. Mm -hmm. And it turned into a life-altering disaster by those same bad decision makers. 
Black people were literally on their roofs begging for the government to do something, mm -hmm. and they were left to die. Even those images are like still searing in so many ways. Um, Katrina illustrated a lot of things that people already knew. Geographic segregation, mm -hmm. generational poverty, the impacts of what we've done to our planet, and so many other systems, education, justice. But at the heart of Katrina, no one was nervous about disappointing black people. Wow. The government wasn't nervous, corporations weren't nervous, media wasn't nervous. And when institutions are not nervous about disappointing your community, it doesn't matter what kind of research report you have that illustrates all the facts and figures. Um, information is not really power in those situations. Power is power. Um, it doesn't matter really what we do in the courts if we don't have the power to implement those cases. It doesn't matter what our friends in Silicon Valley might feel that will somehow sort of supercharge our change, um, our advocacy towards change. You can't code your way out of a moment like uh, Katrina or even nonprofit executive direct your way out of a problem like Katrina. Um, Katrina requires a, a level of people power and narrative change that forces institutions and systems to be forced to change. Um, for systems to bend in ways that they don't want to bend or absolutely break and then be forced to change. In so many ways, Katrina, for, for the founders of Color of Change at the time, almost 15 years ago now, um, was this moment of recognizing that the civil rights movement needed a new type of infrastructure. People saw folks on their roofs begging for the government to do something. People were giving speeches about the horrors, but everyday Americans who were watching what was happening on TV were giving to the Red Cross. And that doesn't mean that it's bad to give to the Red Cross, but it means that strictly staying inside of a charity frame when there's a structural problem um, means that we um, believe that these problems will just continue to exist over and over again, that we don't believe that we can actually make change. And so this new type of infrastructure that could channel the voices of what people were seeing and give people the ability to collectively respond, not necessarily following a single leader, but be connected to other people. Uh, there were other organizations on the left and on the right that were forming at that time or had some time that were using technology. MoveOn.org is an example of an organization that was channeling people's energy. But there was nothing in the civil rights space that was sort of capturing that energy and using technology. The first email from Color of Change that went out to about 1,000 people happened, um, remember that telethon uh, on TV where people were donating and Kanye West and was standing next to Mike Myers and he said George Bush doesn't care about black people? Sort of like a major cultural moment that happened. Well, at Color of Change, the first email that went out said Kanye was right um, in the subject line. Um, we also had a bunch of t-shirts that were made that said Kanye was right, but every once in a while I wear the gym by mistake. Um, people will not forget like the news cycle and you know, folks will uh, like write about what? Um, I'm like, oh, oh, yeah. Um, uh, so we're like thinking about putting 2005 on it. Uh, that joke does well in New York and other places, but not in Chicago. Um, we have this frame and color of change of translating presence to power and not mistaking presence for power. So presence, how we think about it, it's visibility and awareness. Black people are deeply present in society. A pop star that can stop the internet when she announces she's pregnant. Uh, pregnant. Uh, 
a former president of the United States. There's all sorts of deep presence for black people, black culture, black music. But society can love black culture and hate black people at the same time. And it doesn't, it almost doesn't actually sort of have to be in conflict, right? Like the history of black music, black food, black culture being sort of co-opted and used from yeah. slavery to today right. can all is it all an example of the ways in which um, black people can feed into the culture and not get anything in return. And so this idea of not mistaking presence for power is not mistaking visibility and awareness for actually the type of power that changes things. And because when we mistake presence for power, we think we've done something that we haven't done. We think a black president means that we are post-racial. Uh, we think that like black people winning a bunch of awards at the Grammys means that there's no structural problems in the music industry anymore, that everything is fine. And, and people can use, opponents of social change can use presence, um, uh, you know, Ben Carson and Hug, to say that, you know, they're not racist. Uh, and so I say all that to say that power for us is the ability to change the rules. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's the written rules of policy, sometimes it's the unwritten rules of culture. But the ability to change the rules is what power looks like. And presence is not necessarily a bad thing, but presence has to be a metric on the road to power. And mistaking a front page story or a retweet um, for actual power will always get us in sort of a problem of thinking that something has happened. Right. We also operate from this idea that racial justice and racial justice advocacy has to come from it with an integrated approach. People don't experience issues, they experience life. That the forces that hold people back are deeply interrelated. Uh, a racist criminal justice system requires a racist media culture to survive. It requires, uh, in a society where, um, where uh, violence is going down, but Americans believe that violence is going up, right. that only gets fueled by the type of perceptions people see over and over in the media culture, which then incentivizes people to believe that they need certain types of things to keep themselves safe, even if it doesn't align with the data. And that is, once again, why power is so important in recognizing power in connection with information and not thinking that information alone um, will save us. Political inequality follows economic inequality. We showed up on the ground, uh, you know, right in the aftermath of Mike Brown being killed in Ferguson. And getting to um, on the ground and starting a lot of our advocacy work of supporting local organizations, of making sense, of pushing on the media to cover root causes of what was happening and why people were so upset. Folks could say what was happening in Ferguson, you know, that's a, this is an issue of criminal justice, and here's all the reasons why the criminal justice system in Ferguson is a problem. And then people could have looked at Ferguson and said, you know, the fines and fees that have been levied on the community that have driven, um, um, that are actually um, basically representing 60-70% of the budget of the, of the um, city, which is basically how the city is funding through regressive taxes of ticketing and charging people right. for like all sorts of low-level offenses, that um, is the problem. And other people could say, wow, this is a community that has off-year elections, many of which are, are, um, are designed, don't, don't have, aren't inside of single-member districts. And so the black vote gets diluted, black people can't have any political participation at the level that they're represented. This is an issue of voting rights. And they would have been probably right about all of those things. 
But if the community was more powerful, it would have probably been none of those things. And so how we think about um, solving for racism is not just about how we think about specific issues, but recognizing that racism is a shapeshifter. And that the poll taxes of the 50s and 60s become the voter ID laws of today. That uh, Jim Crow becomes mass incarceration. And you can go through so many different issues in terms of how they shapeshift um, and change depending on the environment and the society that we're sort of currently inside. I mean, and, and it hits every industry. I mean, I just pulled from, from some data that we've um, engaged with around some of our advocacy um, in the medical field and how um, power and perception sort of plays itself out and what, what people think and believe, whether it's true or not, and then its everyday impact on real people's lives. Um, from sort of, you know, how doctors may think or, or what they may believe about their patients based off of race, um, from, you know, pain to, um, to uh, their ability to pay, to their sort of worthiness for treatment, all of those things sort of play themselves out in deep ways. And so, you know, I could have put up, if I was, you know, in an education environment, I could have put up data and charts about schools. If I was um, in, a, in a, you know, talking to police, I could have put up all sorts of data about law enforcement. It, 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 this hits every single sector of society, which once again sort of plays itself out in widely integrated approach, combined with actually deep engagement in specific communities is so important to recognizing how we get to real change. So here's sort of a model of how we do things, right? So I, I talked a little bit about color change, an email to a thousand people in the aftermath of Katrina. We are now a movement of 1.4 million black folks and their allies of every race. So about 1.4 million people have taken action with us in the last eight months or so. Um, about 20,000 people in the last year um, have shown up to in-person color change events in cities around the country. And so what does that actually look like and how do we use the internet um, and digital media in a way that actually channels people's energy? And so I'm gonna walk you through an anatomy of a campaign to give you a perspective of how sort of in real time in sort of a 21st century civil rights perspective, we're engaging with the issues that sort of end up on the front page of your newspapers or end up um, on your television. And so we have a lot of these examples, and so I pulled this one, which is um, uh, a very famous example, which is uh, 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 how we engage um, in the aftermath of uh, Trayvon Martin. Um, and for us, though, once again, because so many of these issues are interrelated, and so much of the work to keep um, status quo in place is interrelated. For us, this really started with the voter ID laws that were popping up all around the country. You know those laws that, that said in some places you can vote with your um, gun license but not your student ID? They're like the one in Texas, right? So they were narrowly tailored to prevent certain people from being able to vote, and legislatures were passing that. And so color change at the time, back in, um, you know, 2000, um, 10, 2011, 2011, 2012, and these were being sort of passed um, in the lead up to the 2012 election, really um, in response to President Obama being elected and the rise of the Tea Party, um, they, um, these laws were popping up in, in state legislators around the country. And at color change, we have a 
they real clear theory about power. And so you'll never see a petition in your inbox from Color of Change that says, tell Mitch McConnell to stand up for affirmative action. No. Um, and this is not a statement about Mitch McConnell. I can do that at another time. But this is a statement <laughs> about, is there real power there? A petition with millions of people's signature on it to Mitch McConnell about affirmative action is not going to change his opinion about affirmative action. There's actually no like leverage or power there. It's not a strategic approach. to get, it's, it's just getting people to click and sign something because we want to get people clicking and signing things, and that's not how we do things. And so we were looking for what was the avenue to deal with voter IDs. And the states that they were being passed, they were being passed by governors and legislators that were largely unsympathetic to our claims. And so we didn't have a, a kind of advocacy effort to push um, and really challenge those things. And so we were like, how do we get at it? And you know, we started to look at how the laws were coming into place, and we found this organization called the American Legislative Exchange Council, ADEC, which is a 40-year-old organization at the time that was behind, that was you know, founded by the same person that founded the Heritage Foundation. And what ALEC basically does is they bring state legislators into rooms with corporations at private retreats around the country, and they write legislation that they then move into state houses around the country. ALEC had been so successful that they, um, uh, that sometimes legislators would forget to take the logo off the top of the paper, <laughs> go to state legislators, introduce it, and the bill would still pass. Um, and you know, and they would keep secret that they would have these meetings. The meetings were off the record. But Alec was a multi-million-dollar organization that was deeply successful. They were behind so many different policies, from all the sort of um, right-to-work laws that are around the country, the sort of you know anti-collective bargaining, um, to private prisons, to the Arizona immigration law that then spread to a number of places. So all of these different policies, they were deeply behind. Alec also wrote the Stand Your Ground law. Uh, NRA and Walmart, which are both members of Alec, um, Walmart being the largest seller of guns um, in the country, um, especially long guns, and they, in a room, wrote this law and pushed it into about um, you know, 20 plus states around the country. And so we found out um, about Alec. We also found out that Alex, about 98% of Alex's money came from corporations. Corporations who said, buy our products or right. use our services. And so we were trying to figure out like what to do about this. So we reached out, so we launched a campaign to our membership saying stop corporate funded voter suppression and explain to our members Alex and what it was doing, but we didn't name any of the corporations. Because we wanted to give the corporations the ability to actually do something behind the scenes. But in this moment where people are sort of seeing this moment around voter ID laws, their outrage um, about voter ID laws, which Alec was behind as well, they, um, they wanted something to do. And so we were going after the voter ID laws at first. And um, we then sent letters to about 15 of the 100 plus corporations that were sponsoring Alec, Companies that run radio ads on black radio, have Black History Month programs, have diversity programs, talk about diversity on TV. You can think about some of those major public-facing companies. They're like, you know, they've got you know, drive-throughs up and down the streets. They, you know, they, I think I'm drinking you know, one of their beverages. Um, all of their, like, all of these companies, right, um, were sponsoring Alec for different reasons had money in Alec and would go to their retreats and push their laws. 
And we got on the we got on the phone with these companies, right? And this is the thing about sort of like injustice and racism is that folks will do what is expedient until there's a reason not to. Right? And so the companies would say, we give a little to the left and we give a little to the right. I'm like, that's great, but there's not really two sides of black people voting. Um, and so we would like have these conversations, you know, go back and forth with letters. By the time we get to the final conversation, they'd get their senior level black person on the phone with me, and the black person, they would talk about like voting with their grandfather, and I would think about voting with my grandfather. I distinctly remember the conversation with um, craft uh, where it's like right before Thanksgiving and I was like black people love macaroni and cheese and this would be really bad if we come out on this and they were like okay um, <laughs> while we were doing all this though the tragedy in Sanford came up and um, we mobilized our members to call the Department of Justice to get involved in um, justice for Trayvon. We mobilized our members, we supported the hoodie rallies that was popping up around the country, we created a platform with a, a short code that you could text and get registered to vote because we saw that a lot of people were at those rallies and no one was the clipboard, so we were like, how do we start kind of capturing information, giving people the next thing that they can do? And so, you know, probably about 100,000 people signed, about 150,000 people signed the voter ID law petition, and about, you know, 350, 400,000 signed the Trayvon um, petition. So in both of those situations, we are now engaged. And so we now have like, you know, all these folks, and then we find out that the Stand Your Ground was written by Africa as well as the Blue Right. And we're like, wow, both of these things are together. And so now we've given people the ability to respond because in their everyday life, when people see the tragedy of Trayvon, the first thing you can't say, that you can't say the first thing is like, you know, I know you want justice for Trayvon, but what you really need to be doing is like working on this structural thing. You need to give people the ability to make their voice heard on, the, on that issue, but if you just leave them there, then you're doing that game whack-a-mole at the carnival where something pops up, you hit it down, something else pops up, you hit it down. You actually need to give people the ability to move through this with you. And so we gave the, the response moment. And now I'm coming in the office every day to my staff, like, are we ready to pivot? Are we ready to pivot? Like, we need to make this Alec connection. Um, and so a couple of companies pulled out behind the scenes. Pepsi pulled out behind the scenes. They were like, we got you. We actually did a mock up for like, what the campaign would look like for Pepsi because Pepsi owns Aunt Jemima. And so we were like, we did this like mock-up where like they were preventing Aunt Jemima from voting, and like Pepsi was like, none of this, none of this. Um, and, um, and, um, and then we, and you know, I was like, we should have asked for more. Um, and then so, because Pepsi pulled out, our, next, our first public target was gonna be Coca-Cola. And, um, and so, we had been going back and forth with Coca-Cola as well as many other companies for months. And we then sent the, the website that wasn't live yet, the press release, all the information to Coca-Cola, and we said, okay, we had a lot of conversations with you about Alec, we're gonna give you 48 hours to make a decision. And once 40 hours pass, we're gonna go live. And Coca-Cola let the 48 hours pass. And so we got, you know, we probably have some overlap between these petitions, but we definitely probably have about, you know, 500,000 people that have signed the both petitions combined now. And so we start going out to our members for like a thousand people at a time. 
um, to um, with numbers, or they click the link and they go to a page, and we've got all these numbers at Coca-Cola where they can call, and we can update the numbers on the back end as mailboxes fill up or people shut up their phone. And within about five hours, the government relations team at Coca-Cola called us like, we get it, we're leaving Alec, we're releasing uh, statement now, please stop having your members call yeah. us. Um, and, and, and so this idea of presence to power, people being outraged in a moment, but feeling that they have the agency to do something, and not that they're doing it individually, but they're doing it collectively. Over the course of the next couple of weeks, we started escalating our members on other companies. I remember like two days later, I ended up on MSNBC, and the host um, read a statement from Kraft saying that they weren't gonna leave out, and I was like, well, Kraft is our next public target, and my staff was watching, they're like, Kraft was not the next public target. <laughs> and they were like, here he goes again. Um, and, um, but by that next morning, Kraft had decided that like, black people like macaroni and cheese and they were not going to play. Um, and so Kraft left. Um, and so company after company starts leaving. Um, then Alec decides they are going to stop any work on voter ID or on stand your ground. And they're going to make a big announcement. Um, we're about 15 companies in now. Um, on this on this campaign, and we're also now thinking about how do we tell a broader story? The story of Trayvon and the hoodie is out there. We want to make sure that we're inside of the narrative space on that. We want to make sure that as these companies leave, that we're pushing as many of them to make a public statement, not just about the pressure, but about the belief system yeah. that potentially led that, because that is part of how you have to sort of create a new set of norms. At Color of Change, we think of narrative change as the rules and norms of society, what's acceptable and what's possible. And when we can change what's acceptable and we can make a, a new set of rules around what's possible, then that's, what we, that's when we change narrative. Um, it's about changing the structures and the systems by what the rules of the road uh, for culture and for our engagement. So we knew that we had this moment where people were watching, people were watching these companies drop. Um, uh, Alec hired Edelman PR to like try to make me and my dimples and black man. They like ran all these like crazy stories about like me and Obama and Solinsky and like I was like I wish I was that cool like that. Uh, was like <laughs> hanging out. I was also a little like off generational generationally. Like I was like hmm you know. Um, uh, but all that to say. They made that announcement. We basically did not budge and kept pushing. Um, a number of companies tried to sort of find ways to get around leaving Alec. Um, in the end, about 100 companies uh, dropped uh, wow. their line with Alec. We left them with about a $2 million budget shortfall. Wow. We forced them to end their committees working on those um, projects. We, in the process, mobilized our members to take on the next couple of cultural steps, which were forcing Fox to cancel the TV show Cops after 25 years, leveraging the moment around the hoodie and uh, Trayvon to have a larger cultural moment. And in each of that, it wasn't about the individual people doing it. It was about a collective movement of black folks and their allies of every race, driving systems to be forced to change and creating a new set of rules. When we ended up meeting with some of the companies afterwards, and one of the fast food companies we met with gave us a bunch of black gift certificates, um, which as doctors will be happy with, I gave them back, so I'm not gonna take these back to my staff. Um, but all I have to say, um, they, were, they were surprised, they were, you know, they, were, they were basically surprised by the ask and the demand. 
and that the demand that they had to do something that they did not want to do. Most of the companies offered us money up front, yeah, right. that they would support our work. Color of Change is the only right. national black civil rights organization that doesn't take corporate money. And so, like, right off the bat, they'd be on our website and, oh, we see you do voter registration. We'd love to support them. Like, well, that would be great. Um, I will give you a set of groups that you can support, but it won't be us. Uh, all of this about this strategy of respond, build, pivot, and scale. I say this because the, the kind of advocacy that's happening now in social media can be very hit or miss. So much of it is just this belief that if we're loud enough or we, are, or we send out enough stuff, that systems will change. But also not obviously looking at all of the ways in which status quo is upheld and the ways in which we have to drive and shift uh, the rules. Forcing decision makers to actually be nervous. Thinking about the difference between being present versus the difference between being powerful. How this all kind of takes place is like, this is part of the arc of evolution, right? So now if we've been educating these people through email, through offline rallies, through all this work, how do we then take them up the, the ladder of engagement towards the next set of things, right? So later this month, we're releasing with USC uh, Norman Lear School this big um, <coughs> report that looks at crime TV, the crime procedures, the CSIs. Um, and looks at the representation of black people on those shows and the representation of crime on those shows. With the recognition that we could write all the great op-ed pieces about the criminal justice system, but people go home and they watch these TV shows and literally judges are telling people, um, telling juries, now I know you watch CSI, but that's actually not how it works. Um, people have a, a belief about the criminal justice system, about crime and punishment in this country that's inaccurate. In, while many of our best and brightest in Hollywood will stand on the stage on awards season and chastise the current occupant of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, um, they will, um, you, don't, you don't get through Trumpism just through Trump. There has to be a whole set of cultural narratives and cultural tools that allow people to believe the things that are are being said, or, or think that the things that are being said are accurate. There's got to be a set of belief for people who live in a communities where there's absolutely no Muslim South Asians um, around to then somehow be afraid of Muslim South Asians and Arabs yeah, right. that are going to come into their community when like, they, no one really wants to go there. Um, and so all of that to say, um, there's, um, there's a whole set of ways in which pushing on that system, but that research report doesn't live on its own. It lives inside a set of advocacy. So once that research report comes out, there'll be a set of networks and TV shows that we will be running campaigns on. Just some quick things that, from a narrative perspective, that these shows do, and actually we've looked at hospital shows too, which are a lot better than crime shows. Um, have challenges, but are a lot better. Um, uh, you know, hospital shows have actually helped, I think, Americans have a different understanding of addiction um, and um, a more humane understanding of addiction, but there's no innovations in um, crime shows. So nothing about restorative justice, nothing about all the things that we're learning about it, the failures of our criminal justice system. Uh, a hero law enforcement figure that even when they step out of the kind of bounds of their job, you're like, oh, that's right. Last year, I realized that we saw that you know their father doesn't really love them, 
or their partner died, or like they're humanized in a way that folks who are engaged with the system aren't. Um, the other thing that's really quick is how race is used on those shows. And so all those shows over-index on black judges. Um, and so we did a survey. The writers' rooms of those shows are largely white. In fact, very few shows have more than one black writer. So white writers' rooms are putting justice through the mouth of oftentimes you know, um, stately um, black folks um, on air who have no backstory. Um, so no backstory, no motivation, they're just sort of sitting there as stand-ins and, and symbolic representations of a system um, with words coming out of their mouth that have been largely written by folks who don't have any connection with the communities or the issues that are being discussed um, and are being showcased on air. And so for us, really trying to be nuanced about the recommendations and how we're trying to push with a deep knowledge that we're not going to end the fact that people want to watch crime shows. What we can do, though, is force these shows to actually have to do some things differently and hold them accountable for it. All of this, for us, though, roots in what we believe is our value proposition for our members. And, you know, every single day, people are hit with all sorts of information, from the radio to the television to the internet. And it can inspire us, activate us. But if we don't give people something to do in that moment, they go back to doing what they were doing before. And so really trying to help people in the, era, in the age where people are walking around with their phones and have so much information, holding this standard of, of giving people the most strategic thing to do when something happens, which goes back to you know, not asking you know, folks to demand Mitch McConnell stand up for affirmative action or, you know, Something similar to that. I'm going to end by talking a little bit about um, how we try to tell stories from a narrative perspective. How we try to drive um, people to the right set of solutions because different stories can lead people to different solutions. And so far too often people look at inequality, whether it's racism, whether it's misogyny, whether it's uh, poverty, um, as unfortunate. Almost like a car accident. And when I say people, I'm not just talking about folks who are uh, the kind of classic caricatures of people who might be on the other side of social change. I'm talking about people who are like, you know, deeply rooted in believing that things need to change, can still tell stories um, that make people believe that it's unfortunate rather than unjust. And when we leave people at unfortunate, they work towards charitable solutions alone rather than structural change. So when what happened in Flint is unfortunate, we send water bottles and we get over it and we move on to the next thing instead of pulling out the pipes. When we think what's happening with public education is unfortunate, we clean up inner city schools instead of changing public education. When we look at mass incarceration as unfortunate, we work for reentry programs instead of dealing with uh, policing, sentencing reform, bail reform, and all the structural issues that actually um, ensure that America, with 3% of the world's population, has 25% of the world's incarcerated population. That, you don't actually, uh, you can't charity your way out of those type of situations. It actually requires a set of rule changes and structural changes. But the stories we tell, because far too often we're trying to build empathy alone for the people most impacted. And when we leave people at empathy, we don't actually make the folks who are impacted powerful. 
And social movements have always been fueled by people believing that the folks that they were getting behind, especially when allies are standing with those most impacted, that they're getting behind people that they see as powerful in some way. Young people in the South sitting at lunch counters and defying um, archaic rules about who can sit together and who can, who can eat together. Uh, gay and lesbian couples, um, you know, not being able to see each other in the hospital and people seeing their relationships as powerful and wanting to stand with them and support them. People seeing young undocumented folks marching and standing up for their freedom and wanting to stand behind them. Yes, there may be some aspects of empathy, but it's not empathy alone because empathy alone gets you charity. When you actually work to build power around the people that are impacted, then we get to folks seeing folks as fully equal. And then people work for the type of change that brings about equality and equity, not just um, mitigating the harms, um, not just patching up those harms. And that, you know, for us, um, as, you, as you think about sort of the types of changes that have to happen inside of institutions, whether they are medical institutions, whether they are educational institutions, it, or, or law enforcement, it can't simply be about implicit bias training. Because implicit bias training alone doesn't change any of the structures or the, or the, um, or the rules or the hierarchy that put those problems in the first place. We don't have a training gap. We have a gap in a whole lot of other things. And training can come, and training is important. I've seen where training has been helpful. Like, believe me, I, I'm not opposed to it. I do believe, though, it's like dipping your toe in the water. And in the end, far too often, um, when you look at sort of like what has actually changed over a period of time, you know, and I remember talking after the Starbucks incident with Howard Schultz and spending some time talking with him and being very clear that we did not want really to be part of the training. Um, and um, one thing I was like, reminding him, I was like, this is great that you're closing down your, your stores, but you know, as a person who like, you know, worked through high school and college at you know, all sorts of retail stores, People have those jobs for six months, a year. And so, you know, are you gonna close down the stores every six months? Because you're gonna, you're gonna have a 75% turnover in a year of all those staff, not to mention like a one day training um, to undo people's sort of um, lived experiences, not just prior to that training, but their day to day lived experiences in a society where folks go and they watch television shows that tell them who to be afraid of. We did a study of New York local news a couple of years ago where we looked at all the local um, nightly news programs and we tracked crime for six months and um, almost had to pay like hazard pay for uh, the staff who was like tracking it nightly. Um, and um, when, when criminals, when, when, when suspects were um, um, identified by race. And then we took that data and we compared it back to arrest records that we already knew were skewed because of stop and frisk and broken windows, you know. I live like, you know, a stone's throw away from the Columbia's main campus in central Harlem, and you know, no one can tell me that there's not just as much drugs being done on the campus as there is in central Harlem. Like, you could tell me, I won't believe you. Um, and, um, and we don't get arrested, right, for that. And so, um, but all the networks had a distortion rate 
on terms of overrepresenting black crime and underrepresenting white crime, anywhere between 40 to 70%. Mm -hmm. Trying to change public policy, mm -hmm. trying to change rules and norms inside of that, we almost, and so you know, when we when we went to the networks with the state, they were like, we're not racist. And I was like, well, no one said you're racist. <laughs> uh, but like there's decisions being made over the course of you know, this is not this is not a look at your programs for a week or a look at your program for a day. This is six months. So over the course of six months, this is sort of what happened. And so let's talk about the structures and the rules that led there. And they all wanted to do implicit bias training. And I was like, well, y'all should have already been doing implicit bias training. And you should do implicit bias training, but implicit bias training is not going to help. So the networks that only did implicit bias training had either no change or they just got worse. The, 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 the networks that, 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 that look, the one network that looked at like real structural change and how they were making decisions and putting in a process each week to evaluate what they actually did up against it, saw deep changes in what they presented um, to the public on air. And so they're, they're just like anything that we pay attention to, you know, when we think about you know, making money, when we think about saving lives, when we think about all the things that we hold in high standards, we have to put the same type of rigor into that that we put in to dealing with inequality and injustice. Um, you know, for us as a narrative change organization, we really work to try to immerse people at scale in our story um, and find the ways that we're removing harmful stories and content. And then finally, you know, Dealing with some of these big kind of um, ideas in society that once again lead people to the wrong stories. Just a couple of examples, like on the bottom one here, black people are not, people, black people are human. They are either superhuman or less than human. We did work with some um, researchers to look at um, local news once again on the coverage of black men on local news. And 90% of the coverage across a set of networks um, for black men was either crime or sports. So either someone is like doing something that's superhuman, dunking a ball, throwing, you know, uh, throwing the ball far down the field, or they're acting outside of society. But not day-to-day -day sort of stories or, or sort of images that the public is seeing just of people living in. That is like then how people then have to engage with a hostile climate. Uh, fighting injustice means changing the behaviors of those who create it, not just those who suffer it. Uh, there's a way that you can say, um, you know, the graduation rates for black uh, kids are 13% less than those of white kids. And you're placing all the blame on the kids. Or you can say that our system is failing black kids, you know, at this rate, and as a result, we have to do different stories lead people to seeing things differently. And how we tell the story can either be about how we fix those who have been oppressed and harmed by systems, or we can tell the story about how we actually fix the system and fix the sort of structures that put people in harm's way. Um, and then, you know, uh, black people are the solution in society, not the problem. And I, you know, look at stories that come out all the time as the rates come out. Right? And, um, and then it's about black parents and how they're treating their kids, rather than about the pollution um, 
or about um, all sorts of things that corporations have been allowed to do in certain communities and not in other communities that have led to some of these things. Not stories about sort of the impacts of poverty, not stories about the impact of sort of educational equity. And so how do we get ourselves um, to create the type of incentive and drive to solve the root problems um, that get us to a more equitable society is exactly why narrative is so important. But narrative is only important if we recognize that narrative has to be combined with power. Because when communities are under attack, um, it's not just about the story of empathy, but it's about how we ensure those communities are powerful enough to actually be part of the, their own story of their own liberation, not just sort of tools for someone else fighting for them. Um, you know, we at the organization work across many different sectors. This is our Not To Be Trusted report. We work inside of a lot of writers' rooms in Hollywood to help uh, creatives tell stories. We bring real people into writers' rooms. This is an image from Blackish, where we work with them on their um, episode around policing and Black Lives Matter. Um, this is Larry Krasner, the new district attorney in, in Philadelphia, who our PAC helped elect, um, but also who is doing a whole lot of um, innovative reforms around um, around bail, around who gets prosecuted, around um, alternatives to incarceration, leveraging public figures who are doing new and innovative things to be the sort of narrative vehicle for what's possible. Uh, when leaders take on new things, how do we um, create enough energy around them so that more people want to join them? Um, the work that we're doing in you know, social media, which I can talk about at some point, you know, working with you know, Chris Rock, um, and Keegan on, um, on uh, educating the public through humor about, uh, about uh, voter suppression uh, and getting provisional ballots this last election cycle. And so these are examples for me, once again, of how do we make the story big? Uh, with a recognition, just like the crime procedures, that we have to reach more people in order to engage. That there's a way in which um, getting the op-ed piece in the New York Times might satisfy some of my foundation funders, but like no one in the barbershop is going to be talking about the, um, the, the New York Times op-ed piece, but they will talk about the Blackish episode. And so recognizing that and recognizing the sort of various things we have to do, whether it's you know, doing the op-ed piece so we can convince one legislator to do the right thing, or the sort of larger narrative work of shifting um, people's opinions and perceptions to do something different. And then finally, to close, um, to change society, we've got to change the rules. And that, if anything you take away from um, our time together, is that um, moving from uh, structural change, moving from charity to structural change, is how we make justice real um, in this country. It's how we build the type of momentum so that, you know, we don't talk about um, all of the sort of disparities that um, show up you know, in our news media, show up in our textbooks, show up in our conversations, that we don't continue to talk about disparities that happen now, five years from now, the same exact way that we're talking about them now, with the same exact numbers or that they've only gotten worse. Because that is the road that we're on when we only talk about these things from a charity perspective, or we talk about them from a perspective of trying to change those who have been oppressed. Doesn't mean that we don't have um, agency. What it does mean is that the agency has to be about changing the structures and the rules that are far too often held people back. 
I will end there and open this up for questions. But thank you all very much.
Like, you know, like, in order to be head of programs at GLAD, I had to know all sorts of things about white people, I had to be able to sit with donors, I had to be engaged, and I regularly would come in contact with white colleagues who didn't have to know anything yeah. about black people or expected me to be their sort of, like, Sherpa. And, um, and the sort of um, extra demand on black people to, uh, people of color, um, to be uh, cultural navigators uh, is also, um, is also, so how in our education systems are we requiring, um, not as in a, you know, are requiring a, a, a level of knowledge and understanding about communities um, that will be served, um, not as like some elective, but as like a baseline to actually being able to do the job. I remember when I first got hired at, um, when I first got promoted at GLAD to be head of programs, and one of the, I was like sitting with a, a staff member who was, you know, a couple of years older than me, but in my, in my generation, and I used, um, I used like, we used all sorts of like slang and terminology, and I used terminology that was probably more familiar with like black gay folks than it was with like the larger community. And the staff member who was sitting at my desk um, said to me, uh, you know, sometimes I don't understand you know, what you're saying or how you're saying it, would have never said that to a white class, right? Like the expectation was like, oh, I don't understand what you're saying, I better go Google it and figure it out. But the expectation was that I was supposed to communicate for this person. Um, and so I say, all, I say all that to say that the expectations that we have for people and the bar that we set for people um, to be able to engage with our communities has to be higher. The bar for teachers that go into inner city schools has to be higher. The bar that, that for, for doctors and nurses and, and healthcare practitioners that, that um, treat in, in communities of color has to be higher. Um, and that, right, once again, gets back to the power of organized constituencies being able to push. But if the bar is not, if the bar is not higher and the expectation is, is that you don't have to have a relationship or a knowledge with those communities um, in order to be helpful to those communities, um, then we will like never solve some of the problems. Uh, yeah. Hello, um, thank you again for coming to speak with us. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I really think that a lot of things that you're doing, like you said, are completely genius and it's definitely needed. And so my, my name is Jalen, and I'm a first year medical student here. And you mentioned social media a little bit, and I just want to ask a question about that, you know, because I'm. I was fortunate enough to go to two goodness, great institutions and be surrounded by a lot of really intelligent peers, you know, um, that are around my age and millennials. But I've noticed, like, as I've been on social media, every time there's like a huge incident of like police brutality or like someone dying or this, this, and that, you know, we all really, really passionate and care about it for about four days if we're lucky, maybe a week, you know, and then it passes and then it's like a week goes by and then something else happens and you just keep repeating. So do you have any specific advice for millennials, millennials in general, like a way that we could leverage our um, voice on social media or even beyond that, like tips that we can do? Yeah, I mean, I, I generally encourage folks to, to join something. That I, I just don't think that you can make change alone by just being kind of an individual actor. And these, um, and social media platforms are designed to make money. And so they're designed to um, not aggregate and build power around voices, but to capture your data and monetize it. 
And so, uh, you know, this is why we have developed this respond, build, pivot strategy, because we know at each phase we're gonna lose people. But if we can keep enough people up a ladder of engagement to deeper and deeper action from a petition, which may be the first thing that people get, which like, you know, for us it's like a virtual door knock um, in political terms, like it's like a, it's like the virtual way when something happens, how can we be the first people in folks' inbox? Not with like the loudest or the most comfortable thing to do, but hopefully the thing that will lead us to like real strategic change. And trying to explain to people what the theory of change is. Um, but I, I do think it's hard because, you know, we're hit with a lot of information. And I watch the outrage happen. And so in those moments, we try to get in and point and channel that energy in the right direction. And sometimes we're like deeply successful and sometimes stories go away quicker than we want them to. Uh, but all of it for us is about like being able to start out, hopefully, at a different place than the last time, uh, right? And so leveraging the, um, some of the outrageous policing incidents in Philadelphia to get a new district attorney um, in place who then goes in and says, I am not asking for bail and, and charging people for these seven offenses anymore. Um, that, the, that the men who were arrested in Starbucks were arrested, but they were actually never charged because a new district attorney doesn't charge people for that anymore. And so as a result of never being charged, they were never given bail. Um, they were never gone through that process. And so that energy doesn't happen of electing a new DA because people do not show up in district attorney elections. It's really hard. Um, if we hadn't built power around those incidents that were happening and helped people understand that the way, so we increased black, young black people's turnout um, in the 2017 district attorney race by about 16%. Um, we found a candidate who was the former uh, lawyer who represented Black Lives Matter, um, who represented uh, the Occupy movement, and who represented ACT UP. He had sued the police, he was a criminal defense attorney, he sued the police about 50 times before ever you know, becoming the district attorney. He, the first week he, list, he releases a list of about 30 dirty cops that he won't put on the stand um, anymore, so they shouldn't even bring charges. Um, fundamentally, by right, changing, beginning to change the relationship, it's not everything, right? But we don't get to that if when we start here. We don't get to 100 corporations dropping out of it without challenging the energy of Trayvon, because quite frankly, no one would have cared about Alec. I would have had to, there was no way for me to make Alec a thing um, unless they made themselves a thing. And so for us, the, the, build, the, 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 the opportunity that social media provides is the ability to um, capture people in the moment and channel that energy. The fallback is, is that, it, that these platforms like TV, like so many other like platforms, are not designed to supercharge social justice. They're designed to make money. And we have to fight Facebook as much as we have to use Facebook. Um, and you know, we have been advocating for changes at Facebook for years, and you know, a few months back, um, there was a you know, New York, New York Times story about how Facebook hired a PR firm to attack us. Like literally, like I'm you know, in a car going to a meeting, and like the staff is calling me like, oh, you need to read this New York Times article, um, and they have been attacking us basically. Uh, um, 
And no, it's ended up with us moving a lot of change at Facebook, including last week, we forced Facebook to eliminate all uh, white nationalist uh, sites off of that, off of their platforms. We're currently pushing Twitter and YouTube to do the same thing. We had, we got them a few years ago to do white supremacy, white supremacist organizations, but white nationalist was a harder nut to crack for some reason. Um, and, uh, and so we, we did that. Um, but the algorithms on these platforms, the way these platforms are structured, are designed for us to move from moment to moment to moment to moment. And that's what we're oftentimes fighting against. And just like TV supercharged so much of what happened in the civil rights movement of the 60s, radio gave voice to black people and so many other communities being able to talk directly to their constituencies. Social media, the next form of communication, whether it's um, <coughs> virtual reality or other tools that may help people better understand folks' situation, all of those things should be looked at as tools. And we should use them as such and also recognize that we also have to hold the entities behind them accountable because if at the end of the day their goal will be to make money and that will always be in conflict with um, equity. Okay. Uh, so, Because of the power that 
this institution has been able to build of its perceived power, real power, doesn't actually matter because that's power. And the idea that 70, 80% of Americans can believe in gun reform, but yet nothing actually moves, means that public perception alone doesn't actually lead to structural change. You need other things in place that drive it. And so the NRA just is like a model. And I also like think about it in terms of like NRA TV, which I um, sometimes go into rabbit holes with. And if like you ever like want to like be scared, I say don't do it on your weekend. Um, or like do it before, like if you like do therapy or something, do it right before that. Um, the thing I would say about it is it's like so effective because like, you know, you'll look at the anti-gun videos on our side that like look, or gun safety videos that like look great and got like, you know, 100,000 people that have watched it. And you go to some random NRA video that has like 30 million people that have like watched it. Um, and then it leads you down a rabbit hole to five other videos yeah. and conspiracy theories that make no sense. And we, and, and it's sort of really understanding what we are truly up against because far too often I think we are in these silos of who we're talking to and not talking to. And so we think we know things that we don't know. And I thought I knew after Trayvon Martin and Jordan Davis that black people would just be with us on standard ground guns. And I like realized there was a whole set of like information that I wasn't tapped into that I need to make myself tap into so that I could like effectively engage with that conversation. And I just think that for a lot of people who care about justice, for people who live in quote unquote blue areas, the sort of surprise of Donald Trump, yeah. uh, whether it was a surprise that happened around people's kitchen tables and their like family gatherings where they were surprised by a family member saying something that they're like, oh, I never believed that you thought that way. Um, or was it actually election night? Uh, all of those things, I think, are representative of sometimes us trying to operate on narrative systems that make us feel good. We say things because we think, because that feels right or it sounds right. And one thing that even with like engaging with a largely black audience, um, but with a good number of allies, I regularly will, because we test our, we ABC test our campaign, we have 1.4 million members, that our data scientists do this much better than me, but they can like, I will come in with an idea, and they can like draw it up quickly, and we can test it on 20,000 people, and do the math to figure out how it's actually gonna show up at the end. And you know, I am, I like to say that I am right more than I am wrong, but I am wrong enough to like, say that slowly in front of staff. Um, well, maybe this time. Um, and, but that's important, right, for us as an organization to be um, committed to both listening and engaging and responding and not just being sort of knee-jerk about saying what people believe or thinking that we know what people believe without actually fully engaging them. Hmm. I hope I answered the question. So I'm still thinking about your first line about presence and power. And I'm wondering if you feel that we have the time to invest in power without presence. So like the Supreme Court is the way it is because the smart right started decades ago. It was like in the 50s. Yep. To pack very 
conservative, local, municipal, state, district court, uh, 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 courts with the justices who would vote along their lines. That took like half a century. Do we have the time to start, and it had to be stealthy. Yeah. It had to be stealthy. Yeah. There was no presence. Yep, yeah. yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. Do we have the time? I don't think that, I think that we have no choice. Um, and I think like, people would have said we didn't have the time 15 years ago. And then, so we didn't do it 15 years ago. And it's like, we don't have the time now. Yeah. And then, and so I do think um, some of the ways that the court has um, moved on, on issues around sexual orientation, as an example, is about presence. It's about power, too, yeah. but it's about presence yeah. and cultural movements shifting even while um, folks on the court, they have got to the court with a set of opinions, but the culture around them shifted and they shifted as a result. Now, you know, some of the people being thrown on the court now that, like, you know, the Brown versus the Board of Education was, like, decided unfairly or yeah. wrong, yeah. like, are, you know, that, that type of thing is scary. But I do think it does get back to like rule change, right? And so we should be thinking and building presence and power around rule change. In a society now that um, has a different type of life expectancy, do our trip court appointments be lifetime, uh. right? There are all sorts of like structural rules that we take for advantage. And I'm not endorsing anything. I'm just simply speaking to how the right thinks about rule changes, right? And how they think about um, both getting in power and solidifying power, right? right? Like, right. And so if, the, if folks who thought about you know, equality when the, you know, you know, when Democrats or the left control things, right, why doesn't, why don't we make statehood for DC? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like there's all sorts of like structural things, right, that help advance power and help us allow ourselves to move the ball forward. Oftentimes, um, I explain it like this, like President Obama um, was a change candidate, right? Like change inside the conventions. And there's, we could talk about that for a long time. You know, um, and you know, we did all sorts of work to help elect President Obama and, um, and did a lot of work with him. And you know, there were times when we were outside of the White House protesting, and there were times when we were inside the White House meeting. Um, and I say that to say he's a change kind. Donald Trump is a change the rules And that's a different archetype. It means that um, even from our own response, the change, like after President, after Donald Trump got elected, I saw many people say, okay, yeah, we just have to get, we have to figure out you know, how we're gonna engage with the administration, we have to figure out, and I'm like, well, this is a change the rules environment. The conventions that we knew were gonna be thrown out. We may not, um, we may not have liked the politics of a previous education secretary or housing and urban development secretary, but we knew they knew something about education and housing and urban development. Right. Changing the rules means throwing out all the conventions, yeah. and as a result, like um, our response has to look different um, to those moments. And and I do think that from that perspective, um, it does require us to think about presence and power, but. When you when we don't control things, yeah. um, how we get to power is you know is challenging and and um, but the voter ID laws that pop up right that make it harder for folks to vote is um, a structural play of power. 
the ability to restore voting rights, right? The first taking away voting rights from people without these conditions is a power, is a rule change. But restoring it is a rule change on our side, right? That opens up the franchise and gives us the ability to reach more of the people who might care about the issues that we're advancing. Um, I say all that to say that, like, the questions um, uh, my big thing is not mistaking presence for power, which I think is the biggest thing, um, or to spend all of our time on presence. But I also believe that for oppressed people, oftentimes, building presence is incredibly important to getting to power. And I don't think that um, you get to a civil rights movement right. without building deeper presence, that you get to, um, you know, uh, um, the changes that have happened in the workplace for women um, in other sectors without presence. Yeah. Thank you very much. I just returned from a 12-day trip, middle and lower Alabama, on the U.S. Civil Rights Trail, which I recommend to everybody yeah. in history. Uh, it was absolutely grueling. Um, in preparation for it, I read Martin Luther King's book, Why We Can't Wait. As you know, in the beginning of that book, he, I think he, or Jesse Jackson wrote the preamble, posed the question of why, um, what, what did the Negro do to deserve all this? What, 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 why did this happen? What, what's your answer to that? Well, I don't know if I have any better of an answer than, um, than uh, uh, any of the kind of great historians of King um, or um, activist. You know, I, I do think a lot about sort of when rules were put in place and what people were afraid of or trying to block. You know, from the sort of stories about the sort of first Africans who arrived in, you know, America uh, 400 years ago now. Um, and, and that sort of relationship for me being um, indentured at first. Um, and then recognizing that we no longer be indentured um, to the, the, the rules of the road um, of how things shifted during Reconstruction, to all the ways um, during Jim Crow and post-Jim Crow, um, right, the ability, the, the, ability um, the intersection between capitalism and democracy um, and its role in um, requiring um, there to be an underclass and, um, and, and in order to keep the upper class in place, there, had, there has to be some sort of pathway for people to get in, for people to grow into it. And so the expansion of whiteness over time, you know, I like old newspapers and I think about like some of the, um, you know, old newspapers headlines from like the 20s and the 30s when the sort of influx of Irish immigrants and um, European immigrants were happening. And some of the horrible things that were written about uh, those immigrant populations. But America's response to that was to build roads and schools and hospitals, was to make, um, open up space for more people to become American, even in the face of not, uh, still creating deep barriers for black people's full participation. But that response, and sort of even we're seeing the sort of response um, to um, uh, browner immigrants coming into the country now as um, 
us closing off, us going into austerity, us cutting off sort of the expansiveness, us finding ways to not welcome people in. And so however horrible um, the, some of the underpinnings of the kind of desire to make people American um, were, and some of the horrible things that were written about, um, you know, immigrants who were not yet white but became white, um, you know, the, the way that the country responded and the rules that they put in place um, led, led to people's ability to be able to uh, uh, create wealth, build families. Um, I, I grew up on Long Island, um, and I think about Levittown, um, you know, as, um, and sort of the way that Levittown was structured. People, people of many different races made, a, made a, a bet to protect this country, and only some were able to benefit from the sort of fruits of its labor. I, you know, it's hard to get inside of all the people who were involved in um, ensuring that the rules that are in place are put there. But it's clear that um, there was a belief that they were protecting and holding on to something that was about their own legacy and their survival. And when people believe that they are doing something for survival, they'll do almost what does it mean 
to hold on to things. You know, the in the 2016 election, um, you know, our members weren't overly enthusiastic about the you know the top of the ticket. Um, and I'm just being honest, like we did polling, um, they were over enthusiastic, but we like went in <laughs> to like do everything we can to help you know push people towards. Um, you know, our preferred candidate on the left top and, and, and you know, try to, um, you know, elect Secretary Clinton and, we, and our, our PAC did it. And we talked about accountability. Uh, we're like, this is the person that we believe we can hold accountable the most with a recognition of where people were at. And I do think that um, helping people understand um, how power and position works is also, also part of what we're trying to do. Because even some of the DAs that we elect are sometimes like not the, you know, DAs prosecute people. That's their job, right? And we're trying to end mass incarceration. So trying to make a hero out of a DA is like, it, you know, for like, like, like I mean, I, I, mean I, I sometimes like end up in rooms and I'll like see a young like youth organizer who gets up and challenges me about it and I smile because like, I'm like, that would have been me. I would have been like, like who, who is this person with a jacket and a button-up shirt on talking to me about um, electing reform 90 DAs? Um, and so I, I say that a lot of this work has to be about um, creating real space for the more aspirational, visionary, more radical vision about like what's possible while combining that with our ability to actually govern and our ability to actually hold on to power so that we can stop things and start things. And I, you know, I think that, you know, you know, we can't win if we can't vote. And the other team, the other side knows that, you know, on our issues is that they can't win if we can vote. Yeah. And so many of the things that from voter suppression laws and all the attempts to stop people voting is because of the power that it has. And, we spend a lot of time trying to channel that, and so presence to power, this idea of changing the rules, none of that happens if we don't actually get the people in place that we can hold accountable. And sometimes it's not, you know, it's not the person who we believe is our movement leader, it's the person who we believe is we can hold accountable. So we have time for one more question? Yeah. Uh, hi, uh, thank you once again for coming in speaking to us. Um, so it seems like you've received a lot of pushback um, with the Alex situation, with Kraft and Coca-Cola, even with Facebook, um, hiring a PR firm against you. So um, in these times that you've received this pushback, or even currently with any, with whatever project or movement that you're working on now, how have you, or have you ever been have you or your team ever been discouraged um, in feeling like you've been able to make change? Yeah. And how have you and your team and all your members been able to persevere? It's a great question. Actually, hoping you give me a chance to answer that aspirational. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, look, this like you know, we just led this campaign in partnership with local activists in Tennessee to get clemency for this young woman, Centoya Brown, um, in Tennessee, who had been sexually assaulted um, repeatedly and killed the man who sexually assaulted her, and then she was locked up. 
we, and in a really tough political environment that wasn't really friendly for criminal justice reform, we mobilized folks, pushed and engaged the governor, and got her clemency. And um, you know, over the course of the next week, we got about 50 other stories that were similar to Satoya Brown's story wow. of people begging us for help. And I can't do it. Like, I, like, we, yes, I mean, like, the level of effort that this story got, we got the story from Essence magazine. They, they, they said, we're doing this, we, we got the story, we want to see if Color Change is doing anything about it. It could be, you know, we, we moved it, and the, uh, next, the level of research we had to do to, like, make sure it was, like, it all lined up. And so that can be deeply discouraging because then, those, some of those stories just sit with you, and you're like, we've got to do something about it. You know, you know, six years ago, I would have been the leader, like at 3 o'clock in the morning, but I thought about it, and we just got to do it, guys. And like not caring what we were doing the day before. Um, and I've you know, had to learn and had to work with the team to constantly think about what are we trying, structurally trying to change um, so that we aren't in whack-a-mole. And also, finding the ways to cope with the things that get by us um, and that we can't get to, um, not ignoring them. Um, you know, we led this, we led a campaign, we led a campaign that forced corporations to leave uh, Bill O'Reilly show and, and um, forced Bill O'Reilly up there. We did a lot of cool, interesting stuff like geo-targeting ads over Fox with like 1-800 numbers for women who had been assaulted and having women report back and we worked with lawyers and so, when they canceled, um, when they canceled the uh, um, O'Reilly factor, we started to get a lot of threats. We also started to get a lot of threats because of work we've been doing around cutting off funds from white nationalists. We worked, we forced Mastercard, Visa, and American Express to no longer process fees for a whole set of white nationalist organizations, and about 50 of them, and some of them had to close. Some of these groups have reached out to us and tried to explain why they're white, not white nationalist organizations, and like, I've like, had like, this surreal moment of being on the phone with like a leader of a white nationalist organization explaining to me how he's not, how he's just the other side of Black Lives Matter. Um, and, um, and you know, this is like, I never thought I'd be doing this. Um, and so in those moments, right, we had to hire the former security director from Southern Poverty Law Center. We don't have, Southern Poverty Law Center's you know, $450 million endowment. And so we had to hire him, we had to move offices. They posted my home address on, um, on some of their websites. Um, I was you know, living in like a rate control you know, like, uh, apartment uptown and had to like move into a doorman building um, that has security cameras. And so there are like all sorts of things that have happened that um, day in and day out. But I'm also aware that if that if we weren't getting that pushback, then we wouldn't be relevant. And there's a way in which I could be spending this period of my life doing something that is actually moving the ball forward and deeply meaningful, or I could be like feeling deep comfortable, but not really comfortable because the world is not comfortable right now. And so there are there are definitely ways that we're all pushed back. Um, I just I want to end on just this idea of brand, and brand being really important, and brand can sometimes get like a bad framework um, because of it being so tied to corporations, but being deeply aligned with your principles and your values, and having that aligned publicly 
it's just incredibly important. I, I oftentimes use a movie metaphor to explain the last election. Donald Trump was the big budget Hollywood movie with all of the sort of distractions and plot twists and, um, you know, there's like those movies where like the White House gets bombed and if you've like been to the White House enough time, you know, like, oh, that is not how it would happen. They, they situated the White House wrong. Um, and, you know, but you never really have fear after the movie with someone that's like, goes through all the plot details of those movies because it just, you forgive the plot twists because they have enough special effects and they're entertaining enough, if they are entertaining enough. And then Hillary Clinton was the um, documentary. And I love documentaries, so this is not a time of documentaries. We're like in documentaries, we support documentaries sometimes. And um, but the challenge of documentaries, everything has to line up. Because people won't forgive a documentary if they line up. They'll forgive the Hollywood movie. The documentary, if they'll find one thing that doesn't run, and they'll throw out the whole documentary. They'll say like, oh, stand up for the little guy, paid for by Wall Street and Walmart. People are like, oh no, right. <laughs> Not, even though the plot in all sorts of holes in the big budget Hollywood movie. Obama's kind of like the romantic comedy that, um, <laughs> like, so everything's like nicer and prettier and like better than your real life, and you might want to see that movie again, especially now. Um, <laughs> with each of those things, it's incredibly important that things line up. And so, what does it mean um, as, as folks in the medical industry? It's folks who are doctors, it's folks who are caregivers, it's folks who are helping people to be well, to make sure that the brand of all of that fully lines up. And when we think about what does it mean to challenge and change narrative, what does it mean to build the type of trust um, and engagement from everyday people, um, it means that having sort of what you say and what people expect from you to line up with your actions um, and to line up with what you do in the world. And all of that, uh, for us, as a, as a racial justice organization, means that we have to think about being strategic every day, thinking about giving people clear things to do every day, and think about how we show up for people when they most need us. And for you all, there are very similar things that line up with that. But all of the sort of work in the conversation about narrative has to be about changing the rules of the norms of society to make justice real for all of us, and thinking clearly about who we are in the world, um, what we say we are, and most importantly, what we actually do. Because what we do is our brand, and what we do will be um, the statement about what we fully believe. Yeah. And so thank you all very much.